Chapter 5, Parts 1, 2, and 3 of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Teresa Sheridan. War in the Air by H. G. Wells. Chapter 5, Parts 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 5, The Battle of the North Atlantic, Part 1. The Prince Carl Albert had made a profound impression upon Bert. He was quite the most terrifying person Bert had ever encountered. He filled the small way's soul with passionate dread and antipathy. For a long time Bert sat alone in Kurt's cabin, doing nothing and not venturing even to open the door lest he should be by that much nearer that appalling presence. So it came about that he was probably the last person on board to hear the news that wireless telegraphy was bringing to the airship in throbs and fragments of a great naval battle in progress in mid-Atlantic. He learnt it at last from Kurt. Kurt came in with a general air of ignoring Bert, but muttering to himself in English nevertheless. Stupendous, Bert heard him say. Here, he said, get off this locker. And he proceeded to rout out two books and a case of maps. He spread them on the folding table and stood regarding them. For a time his Germanic discipline struggled with his English informality and his natural kindliness and talkativeness, and at last lost. They're at it, Smallways, he said. At what, sir? said Bert, broken and respectful. Fighting. The American North Atlantic Squadron, and pretty nearly the whole of our fleet. Our Eastern cruise has had a grueling and is sinking, and their Miles Standish, she's one of their biggest, has sunk with all hands. Torpedoes, I suppose. She was a bigger ship than the Carl de Gross, but five or six years older. Gods, I wish we could see it, Smallways. A square fight in blue water, guns or nothing, and all of them steaming ahead. He spread his maps, he had to talk, and so he delivered a lecture on the naval situation to Bert. Here it is, he said, latitude thirty degrees, fifty minutes north, longitude thirty degrees, fifty minutes west. It's a good day, off us, anyhow, and they're all going south, west, by south, at full pelt, as hard as they can go. We shan't see a bit of it, worse luck. Not a sniff we shan't get. Part 2. The naval situation in the North Atlantic at that time was a peculiar one. The United States was by far the stronger of the two powers upon the sea but the bulk of the American fleet was still in the Pacific. It was in the direction of Asia that war had been most feared, for the situation between Asiatic and white had become unusually violent and dangerous, and the Japanese government had shown itself quite unprecedentedly difficult. The German attack, therefore, found half the American strength at Manila, and what was called the second fleet strung out across the Pacific in wireless contact between the Asiatic station 
and San Francisco. The North Atlantic Squadron was the sole American force on her eastern shore. It was returning from a friendly visit to France and Spain, and was pumping oil fuel from tenders in mid-Atlantic, for most of its ships were steamships, when the international situation became acute. It was made up of four battleships and five armored cruisers, ranking almost with battleships, not one of which was of a later date than 1913. The Americans had indeed grown so accustomed to the idea that Great Britain could be trusted to keep the peace of the Atlantic, that a naval attack on the eastern seaboard found them unprepared, even in their imaginations. But long before the declaration of war, indeed, on Whit Monday, the whole German fleet of 18 battleships, with a flotilla of fuel tenders and converted liners containing stores to be used in support of the air fleet, had passed through the Straits of Dover and headed boldly for New York. Not only did these German battleships outnumber the Americans two to one, but they were more heavily armed and more modern in construction, seven of them having high explosive engines built of Charlottenburg steel and all carrying Charlottenburg steel guns. The fleets came into contact on Wednesday before any actual declaration of war. The Americans had strung out in the modern fashion at distances of thirty miles or so, and were steaming to keep themselves between the Germans and either the eastern states or Panama, because, vital as it was to defend the seaboard cities, and particularly New York, it was still more vital to save the canal from any attack that might prevent the return of the main fleet from the Pacific. No doubt, said Kurt, this was now making records across that ocean, unless the Japanese have had the same idea as the Germans. It was obviously beyond human possibility that the American North Atlantic fleet could hope to meet and defeat the German, but, on the other hand, with luck it might fight a delaying action and inflict such damage as to greatly weaken the attack upon the coast defenses. Its duty indeed was not victory but devotion the severest task in the world meanwhile the submarine defenses of new york panama and the other more vital points could be put in some sort of order this was the naval situation and until wednesday in Whit week it was the only situation the american people had realized it was then they heard for the first time of the real scale of the Dornhof Aeronautic Park, and the possibility of an attack coming upon them not only by sea but by air. But it is curious that so discredited were the newspapers of that period that a large majority of New Yorkers, for example, did not believe the most copious and circumstantial accounts of the German air fleet until it was actually in sight of New York. Kurt's talk was half soliloquy. He stood with a map on Mercator's projection before him, swaying to the swinging of the ship and talking of guns and tonnage, of ships and their build and powers and speed, of strategic points and bases of operation. A certain shyness that reduced him to the status of a listener at the officer's table no longer silenced him. 
Bert stood by, saying very little, but watching Kurt's finger on the map. They've been saying things like this in the papers for a long time, he remarked. Fancy it coming real. Kurt had a detailed knowledge of the Miles Standish. She used to be a crack ship for gunnery, held the record. I wonder if we beat her shooting, or how. I wish I was in it. I wonder which of our ships beat her. Maybe she got a shell in her engines. It's a running fight. I wonder what the Barbarossa is doing, he went on. She's my old ship. Not a first-rater, but good stuff. I bet she's got a shot or two home by now, if old Schneider's up to form. Just think of it. There they are, whacking away at each other, great guns going, shells exploding, magazines bursting, iron work flying about like straw in a gale, all we've been dreaming of for years. I suppose we shall fly right away to New York, just as though it wasn't anything at all. I suppose we shall reckon we aren't wanted down there. It's no more than a covering fight on our side. All those tenders and shore ships of ours are going on southwest by west to New York to make a floating depot for us. See? He dabbed his forefinger on the map. Here we are. Our train of stores goes there. Our battleships elbow the Americans out of our way there. When Bert went down to the men's mess room to get his evening ration, hardly anyone took notice of him except just to point him out for an instant. Everyone was talking of the battle, suggesting, contradicting. At times, until the petty officers hushed them, it rose to a great uproar. There was a new bulletin, but what it said he did not gather except that it concerned the Barbarossa. Some of the men stared at him, and he heard the name of Buterage several times, but no one molested him, and there was no difficulty about his soup and bread when his turn at the end of the queue came. He had feared that there might be no ration for him, and if so, he did not know what he would have done. Afterwards, he ventured out upon the little hanging gallery with the solitary sentinel. The weather was still fine, but the wind was rising and the rolling swing of the airship increasing. He clutched the rail tightly and felt rather giddy. They were now out of sight of land, and over blue water rising and falling in great masses. A dingy old brigantine under the British flag rose and plunged amid the broad blue waves, the only ship in sight. Part 3 in the evening it began to blow and the airship to roll like a porpoise as it swung through the air. Kurt said that several of the men were seasick, but the motion did not inconvenience Bert, whose luck it was to be of that mysterious gastric disposition which constitutes a good sailor. He slept well, but in the small hours the light awoke him, and he found Kurt staggering about in search of something. He found it at last in the locker, and held it in his hand unsteadily, a compass. Then he compared his map. We've changed our direction, he said, and come into the wind. I can't make it out. We've turned away from New York to the south, almost as if we were going to take a hand. He continued talking to himself for some time. Day came wet and windy. The window was bedewed externally, 
and they could see nothing through it. It was also very cold, and Bert decided to keep rolled up in his blankets on the locker until the bugle summoned him to his morning ration. That consumed, he went out on the little gallery, but he could see nothing but eddying clouds driving headlong by and the dim outlines of the nearer airships. Only at rare intervals could he get a glimpse of gray sea through the pouring cloud drift. Later in the morning, the Vaterland changed altitude and soared up suddenly in a high, clear sky, going, Kurt said, to a height of nearly 13,000 feet. Bert was in his cabin and chanced to see the dew vanish from the window and caught the gleam of sunlight outside. He looked out and saw once more that sunlit cloud floor he had seen first from the balloon and the ships of the German air fleet rising one by one from the white, as fish might rise and become visible from deep water. He stared for a moment and then ran out to the little gallery to see this wonder better. Below was cloudland and storm a great drift of tumbled weather going hard away to the northeast, and the air about him was clear and cold and serene, save for the faintest chill breeze and a rare drifting snowflake. Throb, 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 went the engines in the stillness. That huge herd of airships rising one after another had an effect of strange portentous monsters breaking into an altogether unfamiliar world. Either there was no news of the naval battle that morning, or the prince kept to himself whatever came until past midday. Then the bulletins came with a rush, bulletins that made the lieutenant wild with excitement. Barbarossa, disabled and sinking, he cried, got im himmel, der alt Barbarossa, Eberwelch, Ein, Braver, Krieger. He walked about the swinging cabin, and for a time he was wholly German. Then he became English again. Think of it, small ways. The old ship we kept so clean and tidy, all smashed about, and the iron flying about in fragments, and the chaps one knew. Got. Flying about, too. Scalding water, squirting fire, and smash, smash of the guns. They smash when you're near, like everything bursting to pieces. Wool won't stop it, nothing, and me up here, so near and so far. Der Alt Barbarossa. Any other ships? asked Smallways, presently. Got, yes, we've lost the Carl de Gross, our best and biggest, run down in the night by a British liner that plundered into the fighting in trying to blunder out. They're fighting in a gale, the liners afloat with her nose broken, sagging about. There never was such a battle, never before. Good ships and good men on both sides, and a storm, and the night, and the dawn, and all in the open ocean, full steam ahead. No stabbing, no submarines, guns and shooting. Half our ships we don't hear of any more, because their masts are shot away. Latitude, 30 degrees, 40 minutes north. Longitude, 40 degrees, 30 minutes west. Where's that? 
he routed out his map again and stared at it with eyes that did not see. Der alt Barbarossa, I can't get it out of my head, with shells in her engine room and the fires flying out of her furnaces, and the stokers and engineers scalded and dead, men I've messed with, small ways, men I've talked to close, and they've had their day at last, and it wasn't all luck for them. Disabled and sinking, I suppose everybody can't have all the luck in battle. Poor old Schneider, I bet he gave him something back. So it was the news of the battle came filtering through to them all that morning. The Americans had lost a second ship, name unknown. The Herman had been damaged in covering the Barbarossa. Kurt fretted like an imprisoned animal about the airship, now going up to the forward gallery under the eagle, now down into the swinging gallery, now poring over his maps. He infected Smallways with a sense of the immediacy of this battle that was going on just over the curve of the earth. But when Bert went down to the gallery, the world was empty and still, a clear inky blue sky above and a rippled vein of still, thin, sunlit cirrus below, through which one saw a racing drift of rain cloud and never a glimpse of sea. Throb, 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 throb went the engines, and the long, undulating wedge of airships hurried after the flagship like a flight of swans after their leader. Save for the quiver of the engines, it was as noiseless as a dream, and down there somewhere in the wind and rain, guns roared, shells crashed home, and after the old manner of warfare, men toiled and died. End of chapter 5, parts 1, 2, and 3. Recording by Teresa Sheridan.